I thought that I would try to work out for myself some understanding of the art and gift of healing. And what I feel is that we need to take into account the relationship between the earth and the solar system and the earth and ourselves. And if we take the terms macrocosm and microcosm and relate these to the solar system and the earth and then again to the earth and ourselves, the solar system becomes a macrocosm and the earth becomes a microcosm to the solar system. The earth to us is a macrocosm and we are the microcosm with all the organisms living on us. So you can see that the great is reflected in the small. That what affects one will affect the other as well. Now the, all the bodies throughout the universe are subject to what we call here on the natural laws of nature. This is universal throughout the cosmos and it creates harmony and also disharmony and it isn't possible to have one without the other same as you've got chaos and law balance and imbalance so if you'd like to think about the solar system with its sun eight planets and its various moons now science tells us that uh, the planets have got regular fairly constant orbits now this is, we can term as equilibrium or balance and also harmony now occasionally these planets deviate by a few degrees from their orbit and this puts stress on the fabric of the solar system we also get foreign bodies enter the, our solar system such as Halley's Comet and the deviations of the foreign bodies produce a, a fair amount of stress on the fabric of space and this creates a ripple which has far-reaching effects on the planets in the solar system and this produces a disharmony on the subtle body of Earth which then, the disharmony on the subtle body of Earth, transmits itself to each and every organism living within it. Now this, the disturbance in the ether of the macrocosm affects the ether of the Earth and the other parts. So what affects the etheric currents of Earth affects our psychic and spiritual natures. And what I'd like to do is just give a little quote which I found in uh, one of the books and it's to just um, give an example of the foreign bodies. In Saxon times, the appearance of a comet was long believed to mean that some cataclysmic disaster was likely to occur, such as war, famine or plague, the downfall of kings or even the end of the world, presumably because a comet's swift and unexpected passage through the sky was seen as a disruption of the orderly regularity of the heavens, heralding a par parallel disruption on the earth. A comet was seen just before the Norman invasion of England in 1066, and also accompanied the birth and death of Julius Caesar. I mean, as, as we know, that um, sunspots and sun solar flares affect the communication systems on Earth, and the moon affects the tides, the growing of plants, and also, to a certain extent, the natures of people. So the pressure in space, which, when a planet deviates from its orbit, it puts pressure on the space, which creates pressures on everywhere else. Now this is also an explanation of the esoteric maxim, as above, so below. Also, the symbology of as above or, and as above, so below is the Seal of Solomon, the, the six-pointed star, which has got two interlinked triangles, one with its point to the heavens and one to the earth. Now, the upward-pointing triangle relates to the higher levels and the subtle body of the earth and represents the higher spiritual and psychic nature of everybody on the earth. And the downward point of the triangle 
it's to the surface of the earth and also the physical and material lives of everybody now we have to look at the earth as a sentient being who's got two sides to her nature the physical and the spiritual just as man has and what affects the earth in either of these two bodies also affects has a reciprocal effect on all organisms on the earth and if the earth feels uh, a stress from outer space the harmony of her serenity is disturbed and dis-ease, not disease, sets in now to alleviate the way to alleviate this is when the stress is removed and so it is with the life of all of us under stress our equilibrium is disturbed harmony is disrupted producing a disruption in our being whether it is psychological, spiritual or physical and until the system is rebalanced and harmony restored, full health is not possible how it is restored doesn't matter whether it's by the GP or your doctor alternative healing, medicine or psychic healing what is important is that the rebalance of the centre takes place as quickly as possible an imbalance in the system materialises in various ways like the physical stress where a person feels not quite well and although you feel just slightly under the weather you can't really think that there's anything wrong with you it, it can also be a psychological disturbance or as a psychosomatic disorder which does in actual fact produce physical symptoms now you can go to your doctor and say that you know I've got these pains, these aches and say there's something wrong and he can examine you and find nothing at all wrong with you now as an example of this in 1982 I changed my job and started working as an insurance salesman and after two months I'd lost about a stone and a half in weight and developed severe chronic pains in my abdomen I couldn't walk for, about, for more than about 100 yards or so without having to have a rest I went to the doctor and I was having um, nausea and headaches and feeling faint and he examined me, sent me to all the specialists I had kidney x-rays, bladder investigation and in the end they said well there's nothing wrong with it, it's just stress, you'll have to learn to live with that which I did manage to cope with a lot of it through inner healing and also a lot of meditation and I learned to come to terms with it, I haven't actually got rid of all of it but I managed to cope with it because I know what I'm looking for the psychic healing can help to alleviate the discomfort which is troubling anybody by rebalancing the system by going to the cause of the ailment rather than the symptoms so what I'd like to do now is to just read something that I found which actually explains what I do and how I feel about it uh, in a bit better words than I could uh, than I find myself it's called psychic healing and it's by a lady called Gillian Graham and as I say she calls it psychic healing psychic energy is the healing energy which all psychics have which can be transferred to anybody in need psychic energy in common with all other energy is neutral until it starts to be used by people who may choose to use it positively or negatively and the strength of psychic energy and the ability to use it varies from person to person some psychics are able to receive and translate information both past, present and future and also transmit he healing energy and diagnose illness and its cause all psychics are able to transfer healing energy even those who have no psychic talent at all or no other psychic talent what I'd like to say here is that every one of us has got healing ability to a certain extent it's just that some people have got it more than others and a person who's got psychic ability will be able to use the healing in a way that is best by being directed to it 
But this means that you've got to trust your instincts and your intuition and not to think about it logically or consciously but to let it come through on its own. No person, psychic or otherwise, can heal another. But a psychic healer can transfer to the, their patient the healing energy he or she needs to heal themselves if they choose to do so. This cannot by any means be done against the patient's will, conscious or otherwise. Now, all I can say there is that conscious or otherwise, that if you're asked to do absent healing, which is uh, entirely feasible, as I have done it, um, you don't have to have the other person's acceptance of it because they're not aware that you're doing it. So although she says that um, it, you, know, you can't do it against the patient's will, conscious or otherwise, you can give healing without the person actually knowing that you're doing it. So really you are doing it without them being aware of it. The transference of healing energy is primarily to remove the negative and encourage the positive aspects of energies to a person. There's a variety of ways to describe this work. Psychic healing, natural healing, touch healing, faith healing, spiritual, spiritualist healing, and hands-on healing. Nowadays, as people are increasingly becoming aware of the need to demystify psychic things, healers commonly use the term psychic or natural healing. All living things have a natural self-healing ability, and on occasions this ability cannot function due to low energies. It is in such a state when a person may consult a psychic healer who will have compassion for the patient and a desire to help them achieve health and balance. And what I find is that I have an empathic ability to put myself in touch with the person's, um, shall we say, psychic nature. And I think it's just it's a compassion towards other beings. Uh, I don't do it consciously, it's just there, it's part of my makeup. I'm more of a receiver than a transmitter, even though I transmit healing energy. That um, I can... I'm very sensitive to atmospheres. I mean, if I go in a room, I know whether or not it's, there's been an argument there or, or whatever, because the atmosphere is slightly disturbed. And I can also pick up from a person if they're um, not feeling very well. All right, I'm a psych I have a degree in psychology, so I obviously use body language as well. But I think I use the two together, body language and intuition. And by watching a person or looking at a person, I can sometimes get a feeling as to where there's something wrong. Now, all living things have a natural self-healing ability. A psychic healer will have compassion for the patient and a desire to help them achieve health and balance. The healer keeps their personal religious, political and sexual preferences totally private practices detachment and helps anybody in need. Now what I find is that when I'm doing healing, I'm not thinking about anything at all. I'm, my mind is completely blank. And I'm more um, in a neutral state. And in this I can pick up either the positive or negative need. A person who is ill for any reason is out of harmony, which unbalances and weakens their energy centres, chakras. Whether sh these chakras are the main cause of the problems or not, all the centers will be affected to a greater or lesser degree. One disturbed cell can affect the whole person. Therefore, the healer, when transferring healing energy, always balances and harmonizes all the patient's centers as they work down the body. The healer will not necessarily sense where the patient is out of harmony, but in any event, the patient's own centers will distribute the healing energy where it is most needed. Now, what I find with that is that I do sense where the person is 
out of harmony and I transmit the energy to that part by putting my hands over it and I'll explain in a moment how I go about that. No one can become ill, unbalanced, feel pain or discomfort from a session with a healer. The number of sessions required will depend on many factors and if the patient has found the right healer there should be some improvement noted, however slight, after a short time. A person does not have to believe in this work, but if they do, there is a better likelihood that they will work with their healer, thus helping themselves more. Now I find as well that um, it doesn't necessarily matter to me whether the person believes in what I'm doing or not, as long as I have faith in myself and know that I can do it. Now, as I said, that everybody has a certain amount of healing power in them, but they don't necessarily have any knowledge of it. The psychics have a great deal more of it, and if they would just accept that they've got it, they'll be directed. But you get quite a lot of people who say, oh, no, no, I'm not a healer. And you say to them, but you are. You know, they say, oh, well, I don't do anything. And you say, well, people feel comfortable when they talk to you. They say, well, yeah, that's, you know, say, well, that's healing. But they're so frightened of the word psychic, spiritual, spiritualist, occult, esoteric, that they won't accept that they've got the healing gift. And in doing so, they restrict it in themselves. They restrict their development. But if they'll say, yes, I've got the healing gift and I want to go on with it, they'll be directed in how to use it. They, my wife will not um, accept 100% that she's got the healing power. She's very, very susceptible, not susceptible, but sensitive, and she can talk to people, people who are very, very upset and disturbed, and within 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, they calm down and they go away feeling so much better. And I said, well, that's healing. She said, but I haven't done anything. I said, but you have. You know, but she won't accept it. And she's quite happy for me to do it and uh, we work together to a certain extent. Healing power is also part of the natural laws of nature but because of its higher vibratory rates it is beyond the visible wavelength such as x-rays, infrared and ultraviolet. Now, as the lady said in the article, that it is neutral and it's neutral until you use it and then it can be used for either positive or negative aspects depending on which way you want to direct it. It can be used for good or bad depending on which way you feel. I mean, it, it can heal people as well as it can harm them. The only thing is that if it's used for harm in some time, somewhere, the harm is rebounded on the person who sent it which is why that um, people who put out curses, if they're not careful, the curse rebounds on them. But the originators might eventually, in the long term, mm -hmm. get it back. Yes. Right? The, mm -hmm. the law of karma or mm -hmm. whatever we call it. Yes. And also, if the other person, who's um, the person who's being cursed, if they're aware of a change in the psychic area or psychic atmosphere around them, they can protect themselves, which then means that it bounces back at whoever sent it a lot faster than it would do. I know somebody who got cursed by uh, uh, some sort of witch doctor in West Africa and it didn't affect him at all because mm. he was a very positive-minded person. He just didn't believe it would have any effect. Mm -hmm. so it didn't have any effect at all. Yes. Well, what I do to my home, to my wife, to myself, I always put a protective circle around us more you know, to keep harmful influences out. I mean, if you're in a developing circle as it was years ago in Cornwall, we used to start off with a circle of protection to keep all harmful influences out. And it must have worked because none ever came in. So. 
the, the power is completely neutral and it depends on how you want to use it. Now a lot of healers say that uh, you use the positive to remove the negative on the patient but I find that I use both positive and negative by different breathing techniques. Again, it all depends on how I feel what is needed. If we call the positive the A element, the way I use that is by breathing in and holding a breath as a comfortable time and then for the negative, by breathing out and putting my abdomen in and pushing all the air out of my lungs and not breathing in and I can usually hold that for about 10 to 15 seconds and that I can feel the difference in the change in the amount of energy that comes from my hands. Yeah. What I do, I have the person sitting on a chair in front of me and I stand behind them, clear my mind, take a few deep breaths and then I locate all my own aches and pains on my body, wherever they are. Then I put my hands on the person's head and what I do is I pick up a shadow image on my body of where they've actually got discomfort. I mean, if it's muscular, it feels it. If it's uh, bronchial or something like that, I get a feeling like being choked up like bronchitis. If it's headaches, um, I get pains wherever it is. Um, and also sinus. A friend of ours the other day, she had problems with her back and she's also uh, does quite a lot of yoga and she was going to see an osteopath and she came into our house and I did some healing and when I put my hands on her back, on her head I could feel that under the shoulder blades was extremely tense and the whole of the spine felt as though it was a rod I kept feeling that I wanted to do this all the time uh, I also picked up the discomfort here and the other, I felt as though I wanted to do this with my teeth and the, um, with the, in the back I used heat massage the discomfort here I used heat and also heat for the sinus and while I was healing her I got um, a very strong uh, impression of pale green and I said to her afterwards you know have you been eating a lot of green vegetables or have you not been eating green vegetables so she said well I eat a fair amount of green vegetables, salads and cabbage and such like so I said, well, maybe what I'm getting is the healing colour for the green. You know, green is a healing colour. And I said that, uh, you know, have you got any... I said, you've got problems with your sinuses. I said, they're blocked because I was getting this pain in the teeth. No, she said, they're all right. And then she said, about five levels... Well, she said, actually, she said, it does feel funny here. So I said, well, using the Chinese yoga technique, you know, put your fingers under there and press in. Does it hurt? And she put me... Oh, she said, it's very painful. I said, well, your sinuses are blocked. And I put some heat into it and she said that she could feel it starting to clear. And I said, you've got a discomfort up here. She said, well, how did you know that? I said, well, I felt it. And apparently, years ago, she had a whiplash in the car. And what it did apparently was it trapped some blood vessels here. And occasionally, um, because they're trapped, she gets a discomfort, but the blood doesn't flow properly. And I said, well, it doesn't feel as though it's um, all that serious. And she said, well... I'm not aware of it all the time, she said, but I'm aware of it sometime. And then I said to her, you know, that your, your spine is very, very solid. And I did some massage up it and also up into the neck. But um, her neck and shoulders are very, very stiff and it's going to take me a few sessions to loosen it up. Well, the two days after she went to the osteopath and then the following week she came in again 
and I put my hands on her head and I said, well your back is a lot better because her spine felt loose and floppy. And I said, you know, you've still got um, some discomfort actually just above the belt, which she wasn't actually aware of, but it was just... She had problems with her pelvis going out and she said that um, she was getting some discomfort down her legs. So I said, well that is connected to it. What it is that the discomfort, uh, with the pelvis being slightly out, it traps the nerve endings at the base of the spine. And um, the trigger spot for that, the base of the spine is the Kundalini chakra, but usually the trigger spot for it is about four to six inches up. And it's where the uh, sympathetic nervous system comes out from the spine. But that runs up the centre of the spine and spreads out. And it's the same as the meridians and uh, the acupressure and acupuncture points. And her sinuses were a lot better and I didn't get the healing colour but uh, she said that after the first healing that I done, did with her that she felt much better and it stayed with her for about 48 hours and well, then she went to see the osteopath who loosened the back up so she felt a lot better but what I did as well by massaging the neck and um, using pressure on two points uh, at the base of the skull I increased the blood flow and she said that um, when she stood up she felt a bit dizzy because the blood flow had gone a bit too quick that she needed really to sit down and let it stabilise itself. And that, as I say, is mainly the way that I do it. And I use a combination. I use heat, I use massage, I use bits and pieces of acupressure, uh, I use Chinese yoga, I use whatever I feel is necessary at the time. When you say heat, does this mm. mean uh, uh, you imagine the heat or physical? No, it's physical heat. From a heater? No, from my hands. Yeah. My hands, with my hands on the person's head, I'm sorry you did ask me what I feel, uh, with my hands on the person's head, I get like a tingling in the fingertips. In fact, I could probably show you all now. If you put your first two fingers and your thumb together, just like that, very, very gently, no, your two fingers, first two fingers and your thumb in between the two, in between your fingertips. That's it, like oh, that. Yeah. Now just, within, alright, we'll just see what you get. Just, you know, rest your hands on your lap. Just make sure they're comfortable. Can anyone feel any tingling coming into the fingertips? Well, that actually is the healing energy. Yes. That's right, if you put your hands like that, you'll feel it coiling round inside. Should we be putting pressure on the fingers? No, no, just gently. Lightly. Yes, I mean, so my fingers are starting to tingle now. Mm. Uh, but with me, it works very quickly. Some people will get it within half a minute to a minute. But that is what I get. It's more as soon as... Well, what I do is, when I take in the deep breaths, I put my fingers like that by the side. Place my hands on the person's head. And then the vibration spreads throughout my hands. My hands get hot, which goes above body temperature. And it's a dry heat and it gets quite intense at times. Now the only way I can explain it is that with the physical aura, or the, the aura of the body, what I'm doing is dipping into that person's aura, which is where the empathy comes into it, the sympathetic nature, the sympathetic understanding, and I tune myself in to that person's particular aura, because our auras are all vibrating at different rates which is why at times you come into contact with a person and you think, I don't like that person, but you can't see why or tell why. Now our vibratory rates are like radio stations. Now when we come into contact with someone that we don't like, or feel that we don't like, we're two radio stations out of frequency and clashing. 
when you come into contact with someone that you like, you're very close to the same frequency. So that means, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you don't like a person, that it is in fact an, an unlikable person. It's simply that the vibration is different. They might be a very nice person. Yes, they may be. And you interpret the, the uneasy feeling you get. You project that onto the other person saying, oh, he's, he's evil or he's not very nice. Where in fact, you're projecting that onto him. What, what you should be saying is, uh, he's just not very compatible with me. That's right, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What you're getting is discordance. Instead of your vibrations being in harmony, they're at disharmony. Mm. You see, and also you take the word disease. Now, disease is um, contagious illnesses such as, but if you split it up, the DIS, put a hyphen in, an ease, it's dis-ease, which is out of balance, out of harmony. And when you rebalance a person's uh, vibrations, you remove that dis-ease and produce harmony and disharmony in the system. Do you always have the same frequency, or is it change when you're on that? Um, you know, like, do I think that the person have the same single frequency, and then um, if they get ill, it changes? Or when you get ill, your vibrations change because you're attracting an illness like a fever. Now, children will say that they see a red, red devil or a red dragon when they've got a fever. And I mean, the different illnesses, I mean, you can either be red hot with a fever or you can be freezing cold. So what happens then is that your vibratory rate changes and you've got an invasion of your vibrations, of your aura. But, obviously, the way I see it is that you're born with a certain vibratory rate which is in sympathy with your parents and should be with your siblings. Not always. And then as you grow and you develop and you gain more knowledge, it changes, your vibratory rate changes. Now, if you've got psychic abilities with training, either in a developing circle, meditation, or any um, exercises which are designed to strengthen the psychic centers, you refine your vibrations, which means that you can then contact a higher rate. Now, a higher rate cannot come into contact with a lower rate if there's a vast difference between them, because the higher rate will consume the lower rate, which, if you take it that... Um, Saul on the road, was it to Tarsus, when he saw Christ as a blinding white light and he was blinded. Now, if you take it as an explanation that Saul's vibrations were too low for him to accept Christ at that time, so he was blinded, his um, vibratory rate was virtually swamped and he shut down. But then when he recovered his sight, because he'd been through that experience, he, his vibratory rate was strengthened but also refined. So then he was able to come into contact with a higher rate. And psychic abilities, like physical muscles, need to be worked at. Because like a muscle, if you don't work at it, it atrophies and becomes weak. So once you've got the abilities, you need to work on them. And the secret is really is finding the exercises that you can use, the mental exercises, to strengthen them. I mean, one that I learnt um, a long time ago is to picture the pineal gland, which is, if you like, to picture it um, in a physical sense, between the ears and in the centre of the head, where the three points meet, that is where the pineal gland is. And that's more or less the seat of the third eye. Now, if you imagine that as a pine cone with an opening at one end, now imagine yourself inside it and you're pushing and stretching it. And what you're doing is you're limbering it up. Because the pineal gland, in, con in conjunction with the pituitary gland, 
works a lot on the psychic levels, on the vibratory rates. But by massaging the pineal gland from the inside, you are expanding it and making it supple. And by making it supple, you then allow it to tune into higher frequencies. And in doing so, it means that you can contact a higher rate. And by massaging it from the inside, you mean by the in, in the Mentally. meditation? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Not by any physical exercise? No. Or no. Like no. What, what I found as well, that when I was doing it, that quite often when I wasn't doing it, I would get a pressure here, mm-hmm. as though someone had got their thumb between the eyes and were pressing. I mean, it might have been indigestion, I don't know. But I mean, I occasionally get it now, but not as much as I did. But it's just as though someone's got their thumb there, like a thumb there, and they're pressing. And it's not that you've got to press forward uh, to counteract the reciprocal motion, it's just that there's a definite pressure there. And I used to find that sometimes when I switched into what I call psychic sight, uh, which again is a higher level of vibrations, which I feel is um, similar to the psychic uh, power, the healing power, it's on that vibratory rate, that I would get this pressure between the eyes. One time that it happened to me, it was about three o'clock one morning, uh, I was sleeping in our attic in uh, Cornwall, it was a huge great room, and I suddenly came to, I didn't wake up because I knew that I was still asleep, but I'd switched into psychic sight at the time I was sitting in a developing circle as well. And the room was filled with a pearly grey light, and I, could, I had 360 degree vision. I could see behind me as well when I was lying in the bed, and yet I knew that I had my eyes closed, and I could see the whole of the room. And I got up and walked across to uh, the sink unit, uh, like a small sink we had there, which was in like a bay window, and looked out over St. Ives Bay in Cornwall. And it was beautiful. You know, there was more colour there and everything was more alive. And while I was looking out of the window, I could also feel myself in the bed. And I could feel the, the covers against my body. And yet I knew that I wasn't lying in the bed. Um, another time, I was driving to work and... I had got about three quarters of a mile from home and suddenly I had a monk sitting in the car by the side of me. Now this monk was as solid as you are. And I remember thinking to myself, that's nice, he likes driving in the car. Now he was about five foot three, five foot five. He was very dark, very slim, had a little black moustache. He wore a light brown habit with a dark brown belt. And he sat with me. I didn't think to ask him what he was doing there, I just accepted that he was. And I drove into work, parked the car, got out of the car, he got out of the car as well, and stood by it while I locked the car up, he walked with me up to where I had to clock in, he looked at me, I looked at him, he turned around and walked away. And the only interpretation I could put on it was that he was with me to make sure that I got into work safely that day. I mean, there's no accidents on that road as far as I know. And I've no other explanation for him being there, because I've always been aware of what I call my friends are with me from, from about this high. And, I mean, I've always called them my friends, whether my guides, people looking after me or what, I don't know. But I've always been conscious of them, and I've always talked to them. And uh, my intuition is fairly well developed as well, which I think helps with the healing. That I don't question my intuition. If it suggests something to me, and even if it seems illogical at the time, I will do it. And I usually find that if I ignore it, I shouldn't have done. Because by ignoring it, Although it didn't seem uh, right to do whatever it's pushing me to do at the time, it was the right thing. And 
I, I used to work um, so I was an electrician on machinery and occasionally I'd go into the workshop and into the stores looking for a small part knowing that we had them in stock but not knowing where they are and I would just say knowing what the little packages was if you like a little green box with white writing on it and I'll just go over and pick one out but it's having the intuition believing in it and accepting it so I think that's about as far as I am I've really got to it. Has anyone got any questions? You mentioned absent healing. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And I've always understood that that's rather a sort of precarious way of describing it. wouldn't distant be... Well, absent with the fact that the person isn't with you. Well, I know that, yeah. but the fact is that it suggests it's not there at all. Ah, I see. Um, no, the way I use the word absent is that the person isn't actually in my physical presence. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are at a distance. But, uh, if, if you like, distance healing, yes, it's the same it thing. It's much more accurate. Mm -hmm. well, it's only terminology, tautology, words. You know. All right, absent healing, meaning that the person isn't physically with you. Distance healing, meaning they are at a distance. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, what I've also done, but only once or twice, is actually someone's come to me and said, so-and-so isn't feeling well, can you do some healing on them? Now what I prefer is that the person doesn't tell me what is wrong. And what they have uh, done at that stage is given me something that, that the person who needs healing, an item that actually belongs to them. And such as, like psychometry, I can usually pick up the vibrations, or if it's someone that I haven't actually met, which is usually the best way to do it, I can pick up their vibrations from it and tune in on that and give them healing from that. <coughs> Again, uh, not actually knowing the people, I don't really know whether it, uh, it works or not. Uh, I do distance healing and I've done quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And last weekend, my wife has got what she calls her adopted grandmother, who's 98 or 99. Uh, she suffers with um, cranial arthritis and she is confined to a chair although she can walk. Now, we haven't seen her since before <coughs> Christmas and when we went over there, She's got rather severe cough, which isn't quite bronchitis, but isn't far from it. And the doctor had given her some antibiotics, which, as she said, I've only just taken them today. They haven't had time to work. Uh, while my wife was talking to her, I just was closed, cleared my mind and stared at the fireplace, and I could pick up from her what her discomfort was. And she was all choked up here, which was like bronchitis, but it's only actually in one spot. Now, I've had bronchitis in the past and I know what it feels like with me and what I get with a person who's got something like that is like a choked feeling that I can't get enough oxygen with inside. Almost as though you walk into a room or you sit in a room that's got a coke or a coal fire and you, you feel as though you want to wheeze, you can't breathe in enough. And she also had a discomfort across here. Now, I did healing while we were there. Um, whether she's better or not, I don't know. But I mean, say... I didn't explain to her what I was doing because she's a very, very uh, religious lady and I don't know that she would be able to accept my doing healing. Um, I think possibly because I haven't been ordained in the church. Um, you know, she's that strong in the religious side. So I did it without her knowing. So again, you see, you don't have to do it with a person's uh, consent. But... Um, Again, it's only because she is so dear to my wife that, uh, you know, I would attempt to do it. How many people have you healed close-up? I wouldn't have the faintest idea. When I lived in Cornwall, it was quite a lot because we used to do healing on Tuesdays and Thursday evenings for about two hours an evening. And there was John, 
myself and one other person and we would sometimes have around about 40 people come in for healing and I had one uh, mother and a little girl and the little girl used to think it extremely funny that I talked to plants and talked to soft toys you see and she always used to say to me, do you talk to your plants? I said, yes I do. Oh, she said, that's good. She said, are they coming on? I said, yes, no, they're growing very well. And she had um, a slight asthma condition. It wasn't asthma, but it was within that range. And I used to do healing on her for that, which used to ease her breathing. And her mother um, used to go down quite a lot with colds. And she had um, severe sinusitis. And she always used to come in and wait for me. And her daughter, um, I can't think of her name now, Maisie was the mother, I believe. Uh, she used to work in an old people's home, and she was only about this tall and very, very slim, and she was always having backache, you know, lifting the people out of the bath. And I was working on her one evening, giving her some healing, and I said, have you been near the sea? Because what I was picking up was waves, the shushing of waves and the smell of salt water. And she said, no, I haven't been near the sea. I said, well, if you have anything to do with salt water. So she said, oh, yes, yeah, she said, um, one of the patients had to have a salt water bath that day. So I'd actually picked it up because she'd had her hands in the water and it must have gone into a pause. Yes, there was one clairvoyant who was asked to find the whereabouts of some criminal. I can't remember if it was Yorkshire Ripper or somebody. Mm. They picked up a, a place name in the Midlands and it turned out to be the place where the paper had been made. Not, not where the newspaper, mm. she was looking at it, um, some kind of newspaper photograph to see, try and identify whether that was him or mm -hmm. not and see if she could pick up any place. In fact, she didn't pick up anything to do with that photograph of the person who I don't think was the killer anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but she just picked up, not where the newspaper was produced, but where the actual mm -hmm. pulping mill was, where the paper had been made. Yes. This is rather interesting. Mm -hmm. It shows how um, fallible, or not exactly fallible, but how it's easy, as you just said, to confuse yes. mm -hmm. one thing with another. Mm -hmm. There are limitations in it, and it's knowing how to interpret it. Mm. Uh, I mean, there was one lady who came in, and she sat down in front of me, and I started doing some healing, and I got pressure on my right ear out here. And it was like, occasionally I get my ears will block up with wax, and it was that similar sort of pressure. But I mean, when it, when it blocks up, it's just <coughs> a muffled... When people talk, it's very, very muffled. But what I got from this lady was, there was a pressure out here, and it was coming in like waves, and it was booming. And I said to her that, you know, you've got something wrong with your right ear. And I said that, although I can probably lessen the booming, I can't do anything about your hearing. And she said, well, actually, she said, that is one of the reasons I've come. She said, because I was born stone deaf in one ear. And she said, I wondered whether or not you could do some healing and bring the nerves back. Uh, now, John Blackhaller, who was quite a good um, healer, he did have some success with a little girl who had gone slightly deaf through measles he actually brought back her healing to quite a higher level to what it was. But this lady had actually been born deaf in one ear. And um, whether it, you know, if it had been that she'd gone deaf after a few years that I might have been able to do anything with it, I don't know. But the nerves themselves were completely dead. And it was this muffled booming that I got. It was actually blanking out all sound on the right side. And at the same time I got a very, very strong smell of oranges. And so I said to her, you know, you either need to eat oranges or you need some vitamin C. And she said, well, that's true. She said, um, my doctor told me that I should get out in the sun a bit more. So, you know, although I always thought the sun was vitamin D, I don't know. <laughs> One thing you said earlier, did I 
you correctly in saying you don't need for a person's permission to do healing on them. Um, other, only other healers I've read and talked to have said they won't do healing unless they do get permission. Yeah, but if someone says to me, you know, can you do some distance healing on a person, mm. they haven't actually asked that person, and that person hasn't given me their consent to do it. Yes. That's what I mean about not actually having the person consent. If I say, if someone comes, to, comes in, like, um, is it Louise, is it? Yeah. I mean, if I say, right, well, you know, would you like me to do some healing on you, Louise? And she says, oh, no, thank you. Well, then I wouldn't. I couldn't. Mm. Because she's made up her mind, she's adamant at the time, I don't want healing. Yes, but I mean, there might be somebody, uh, what I've read, or particularly from the Edgar Cayce people, who, 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 who you know, starting with Edgar Cayce in the 30s and 40s, they, they, they do use sensitive nowadays and healers and um, one of the things Casey said was you should always you can use prayer on a person without mm. their permission but not the healing mm -hmm. energies and he thought using the energies without permission could do harm because it could intensify a bad state of mind if the mm. person were not wanting healing and were uh, or, or some internal thing inside them was resisting it without mm. their consciously resisting it possibly yes but uh, that could actually intensify a bad statement. Mm -hmm. Do you think that would be true? If you did it without permission, not knowing that the person might have this kind of resistance. Mm. Well, um, the answer I can give to that, as far as I'm concerned, is that uh, the people who have come to me and asked me have known um, that I do healing. But that's people and who asked you, yes. yes, and they, that's with their permission. That's right. I'm talking yeah. about doing it to somebody without any permission. I probably wouldn't. It's um, as I say. The only the only thing um, I can say is that uh, doing it without the person's uh, consent is when someone comes to me and says, "Can you do some for so and so?" Now I haven't actually got. I've got permission, if you like, through a third party. Yes. But I haven't actually got the person who I'm going to do the healing on. Yes. I haven't actually got their consent. Well, that might be all right if if the person who was actually receiving the healing had. Uh, trusted the person who'd actually asked you enough to, to, to feel that anything through that mm. mother or mm -hmm. brother or sister or whatever it was yeah. would be acceptable. Well, what I usually need to say to them is, you know, well, have you asked the person if it's all right? Yeah. Now, some say, oh, yes, well, they know, yeah, they're quite happy with um, spiritual yeah. healing. And others will say, oh, no, no, I haven't said anything to them. Mm. You know, so I don't know whether I do that then with. I don't suppose I do it with any other frame of mind than the way that I usually heal. But for a person to turn around and say, no, I don't want healing, well, then I wouldn't attempt to. Mm. I mean, it's... I'm going into a person's aura. I'm going into their psychic nature. Um, and to do that without the consent would be an invasion of privacy. Yeah. An invasion of their persona. And according to some people, impossible anyway, you yes. get the wrong information mm. through, yes. which is they would be putting out the resistance, mm -hmm. which would distort mm. what you got through. Yeah. Steiner, one of the greatest um, practitioners of all kinds of the spiritual arts, earlier century, said that at one point that he could only, even he who had such extraordinary kind of one power, could only do it with uh, with the permission of another person's mm -hmm. um, and their higher self. Really, it had to be through their higher self. He couldn't see into their aura if it wasn't right for him to do so. Mm -hmm. Even even if they hadn't specifically said no, if there was some resistance, it wasn't right. Yes. He drew a blank. Mm -hmm. Do you find that? I haven't noticed that. Well, have you never tried with a person who isn't right? Probably. <laughs> no, I haven't because I wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, because I respect the person's privacy. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, 
I mean, with my first wife, what I wanted to try once was whether or not I could read minds. And the exercise we tried was that I actually placed my hand on her leg and she was reading a magazine, it was a woman's magazine, and the article she was reading was something to do with a country cottage, with a garden, a river with a boat and a little girl. And after about ten minutes I said, well put your book down. I said, and I said, what I'm picking up is that you're reading about a country cottage with, if you like, roses round the door, a garden with lots of flowers, with a river at the bottom, a little girl in a yellow dress and a boat. And she said, well yes, that's more or less what I'm doing. Now, I've never tried that with anyone else and I don't feel that it would be right to do so. That when I do healing on a person, I clear my mind and all I'm interested in is picking up where they're feeling discomfort. Mm. So you wouldn't be able to pick up any irrelevant thoughts? if they'd done something earlier in the day which had nothing to do with their physical condition No, unless... They didn't want you to know about it because they felt guilty about it or something like that. You wouldn't pick that up in that way. If they felt guilty, it may put up a resistance in... But you wouldn't pick what up I'm what picking... the actual no. deed had been no. that caused it. No. I may pick it up in a symbolic way, such as I did with Maisie, where she'd been using the salt water bath with the, yeah. the patient. Yeah. I said what I got there actually was the sea, the waves coming in, mm. and the shh. Of the, uh, the point I'm really the, making yes. is that um, one of the uh, uh, over the years, obviously, I've met a lot of people who and guided them to certain healers or told them about or talked to them about the healing lesson because we've had a lot of lectures on that mm -hmm. over the years. Quite apart from the little healing I do myself, I do do a little. But um, the, the uh, and one of the things that sometimes worries a person is they're afraid to go to a, a psychic or any kind of spiritual healer because they're afraid that they're privacy may be mm. intruded into that somehow the healer will not only pick up about their condition mm. but also some of their other thoughts or mm -hmm. some other things that yes. they don't want that to be seen into. So if you can give an assurance that you wouldn't mm. be into those other thoughts that would probably help yes. in some cases. The mental attitude that I approach healing with is that I want to heal the person from the discomfort that they have and that is the only um, invasion, if you like, that I'm doing. But that is completely with their permission. Yeah, so that's not an invasion. No. Yeah. no. Have you got much evidence of feedback from your patients? you call them your patients? Or? Yes. Um, there's do, they, do they actually feel a, a sensation of a kind of healing coming into them? or They feel better afterwards. There's a lady who lives in Hastings, who was our next door neighbour when I lived down there. And she has cataracts in both eyes and she suffers very, very severely with arthritis. Um, she's quite a lot overweight, which is, I won't say her own fault, because she's nearly 70. And she's ready to go into hospital to have uh, the cataracts done. But every time they take her into hospital, because she's so nervous about the operation, her blood pressure goes up. They take her, it's all right before she goes in. And they say, right, you've got to come in. She goes in the day before. And now if they took her in, did the operation within an hour or so of her going, she'd be all right. But going into hospital in the afternoon, the evening, waiting right to the next morning, before they're being examined, pushes the blood pressure up. Anyway, um, we went in there one evening, and she believes in healing as well. And she said, well, what do you do? So I said, well, I place my hands on people's heads. I said, and sometimes just by holding their hands. She, so I said, well, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. So I went over to her, and I just, may I? I just said, well, all I do actually is to just, if you like, you know, just place my thumbs on you like this. 
And as soon as I did it, I could feel the healing being pulled out of my fingers. Mm. And it was almost like rays of energy shooting out of my hands and into her arm. Did she feel that specifically? Yes. Um, about 10-15 minutes afterwards, we were sitting there talking, and she said, Oh, she said, that feels wonderful. She said, the pain's almost gone. She said, what did you do? I said, I didn't do anything. I wasn't trying. You know, I mean, I, I didn't consciously give her healing or anything. I was just giving a demonstration of what I, uh, the way that I do it. Mm. And that stayed like that. She had a lot of relief for about three weeks. Mm. And just after that, we moved back to Somerset. But what I do quite often is I give her healing, you know, distance healing. But was she positive that you had provided that healing? Yes, because it was there and then. It wasn't instant, but it was within mm. a few minutes of doing so. Because um, she gets the, uh, the pain so much in her hands, that although her hands aren't gnarled like osteoarthritis, mm. and I think it must be rheumatoid arthritis, but she gets to the stage where she can't pick up a cup. She's got to use two hands to do so. Mm. And the pain sometimes is so much that she can't bear to even put her hand around a cup. But she got where she could actually pick a cup up. Mm. And she hadn't done that for years. And did you also heal the cataracts? No. no she had to go in the hospital. Yes. Um, she's still waiting. As soon as she tells us that she's going into hospital, I try to, or I do send her healing to try and keep her calm. Mm. But she's got five cats, and she lives on her own, and the young friend comes in every day, and she's absolutely terrified that something's going to happen to her cats, who are her babies, mm. when she's away from them. And this is what she worries about. Does that mean that it, uh, in your healing you'll find it difficult to remove conditions like a cataract which has, where there is a physical substance that has to be, as it were, dematerialized? Do you find as it might be... I've never really tried. It might be the same with, uh, say, a bone that's mm. been set wrongly mm. and there was a projecting bit or something. Yeah. Would you find it difficult to do that sort of healing uh, where there was some kind of physical substance mm. that had to be... I don't know. I've never really tried, actually. Um, I've always... Whereas arthritis may have physical substances, mm. but you don't think of it so much. No. I, I mean, all that happened, really, I suppose, was that I used the dryness of the crystals yeah. in the joints. This leads on to what I was going to ask. Um, what sort of su success rate do you, do you have, and how permanent is it? Does it go forever? And do you have success rates with definite physical conditions, or is it tending to be more psychosomatically caused conditions that you have a success with? No, it's um, physical conditions. Uh, my sister lives in London, and I hadn't seen her from 1967 until 1986. And I started work in London, and I got in contact with her again. Now, we've always been very close, and I always know when she isn't well. And she suffers quite a lot with bronchitis because she smokes too much. I'm always telling her this, the doctor tells her. So that's um, a very physical condition. Yes, then, yeah. that's right. Now, I always know when she isn't well because I get the urge to contact her, which is a little bit more difficult now because she's had her phone cut off. But um, I have a great deal of success with her bronchitis. And also, she had a fall when she was at work about three years ago. And she caused damage to the base of the spine and it gave her a lump at the base of the spine. Now, I won't say that I managed to get rid of the lump, but I certainly managed to dispel a lot of the fluid that was there and um, enabled her to walk a lot easier because she was having problems walking. I mean, she would walk from, uh, well, from here to 
the main road, I don't know how far it is, but say 100 yards, and she'll be hobbling, and she's 40, 44. And she said that she would be hobbling as though she was about 70 and she was crippled with arthritis. And I got her to the stage of mobility where she forgot all about the pain in the back. It had gone completely. And once um, we were, she was visited us in Tunbridge and we were walking up the road and she had her hand on my arm and she was hobbling and I could feel the vibration building up and I thought, well, either I'm giving her healing or something's going to happen. And she actually tripped over an uneven cobble. And she oh, she stuck out my ankle. And she had a pain in her ankle, but she forgot the pain in her back. And she started walking, you know, after the pain had eased down. She didn't actually rick her, uh, sprain her ankle or anything, but she just slightly wrecked it. You know how it hurts when you twist it over. And suddenly she started walking normally. And I said to her, do you mind slowing down? She said, pardon? I said, do you mind slowing down? I said, you're walking too fast. Oh, so I am, she said. I didn't realise it. And suddenly the pain had gone, just like that. Now, uh, you know, I mean, I get the aware got the awareness that either I was giving her healing or something was going to happen that was going to make her feel better. So whether it was um, foreknowledge of her tripping over the stone, or actually I was giving her healing, and the stone actually clicked something back in, I don't know. But have you ever had a cure that might be considered miraculous? I mean, no. Uh, like somebody who's, who's got some cancer or something, uh, some condition that I've eased people's pain with cancer, but I've never, um, not to my knowledge anyway, uh, actually cured anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, uh, I think I've known about four people with cancer. One was an elderly lady who was in the final stages of it, and she was 78 or 87, I forget which. Um, she was a, a very good friend of my wife's. And she actually went into hospital and died three days later. But um, I managed to do healing on her and ease some of her pain. Uh, because while we were with her, she became a bit more lucid and started recognising people around her. But as I say, she died three days later. So do you ever find that um, you get the symptoms of the person that you're trying to heal, that you get sucked in? No. Ah, now that's one thing I haven't um, explained what I should have done, but what I do is I ground myself, and by doing that, um, I've done it so many times, but I don't actually consciously think of it. It's actually part of my healing, let's say that I've done it so many times that it's become part of my standard procedure, that what I subconsciously affirm is that whatever I, healing I'm doing on the person, whatever I'm curing, healing or whatever, I do not want it myself. And I stand, when I finish with the person, I bring my hands back onto their head, stand there for a few minutes, seconds, wipe my hands over the side of their heads, onto their shoulders, down to their shoulders, stop there for a little while, and then wipe my hands down, and in so doing, shake it away. I don't want it. So I don't actually keep it within myself. Mm. So the, the, the pains or feelings that you pick up, at that point go? That's right, yes. Mm. Um... Well, as I say, I pick up the shadow of wherever the person's got the discomfort. And I normally pick up, say, three or four. And I can deal with those first. And then when I feel that um, I've gone as far as I can on those at that stage, I go back to the person's head to see what else there is. Now, in doing the healing, and I've got the heat, I sometimes know that I can't do any more because my hands start cooling down. 
on that spot. So I know that I've done as much as I can at that time. But there is a danger that if you don't ground yourself and you don't say, I don't want it, you could possibly contract whatever it is yourself. Because there's um, a yoga method of healing, and I can't remember which one it is, that if you don't, more you know, say, I don't want it, and if you don't do it correctly, you can actually draw it to yourself. You can make yourself ill by picking up what that other person has got. They'll feel better. Which wouldn't necessarily mean that if the person had cancer, you would actually get cancer. No, but you might feel a depletion in your vitality. Yeah. Mm. Um, but how do you do the groundings? You said if you don't do it properly, how do you do it properly? Well, uh, as I say, I mentally affirmed to myself that um, whatever I'm taking from the person, I do not want, and that it should be dissipated, if you like, to the earth. Mm. That wiping my hands down and doing that shakes it all out, gets rid of it. Yeah. Now, I've heard this mentioned before, mm. some healers do that. Then other healers say they don't feel necessary to do that. And mm. one specifically said, and I thought this was not a talk I was at, but a tape of somebody up in London, I think. She said, oh, well, this shouldn't be necessary. Mm. But presumably it just depends on what you mm -hmm. think is, is right for yourself. Yes. And well, other people would just make a mental affirmation. The thing is that in ordinary life there are some people who do actually drain you. you yes, there are. Can't be with them for very long. That's there right. Are other people who it's a joy to be mm -hmm. with them, and you don't want to leave yes. them. Yes. So they're they're what's slow, which naturally occurs. That's right. Um, I call those, if you like, psychic vampires. Um, my first wife, who is also Sagittarian, but strange enough, she's got a rhesus negative blood group as well, and she is and was 100% negative. You could have six weeks of dry weather, beautiful sunshine, so it will rain tomorrow. And I'm naturally optimistic and fairly positive. And over a long period of time, she did drain me. And I started getting very tired. Now, whether I picked up ME, I don't know, you know, this, what they call the yuppie flu. Um, I was tired 24 hours a day. This actually took about four years to come on. And if I went up three steps, I had to stop on the second one and take a, re a rest to get enough energy to lift my foot up onto the next one. And I went to the doctors, and was, you know, oh, well, you're just overtired. I was working seven days a week in contracting. And uh, I went into hospital for about 11 weeks. They saw you've got anxiety and depression. But my wife attracts what I call lame ducks. People who load her with all their problems. You mean your second wife now? No, it's my first wife, this was. Ruth is just the opposite. She's extremely positive. Um, she's got enough belief in her own abilities, but she's extremely positive I and outgoing and caring. That she might attract them from a positive viewpoint. No, no. Take pity on them. Yeah. My, my first wife, as I say, attracts lone ducks. People have always got all sorts of problems. And she thought they're my friends. And they used to say, they're using you. And the thing was, I would come home from work and I would get all their problems. You know. And, of course, this was wearing me down as well. And uh, we were incompatible in our marriage. Um, I have a strong sense of social responsibility and we had three young children and I could not leave until they were old enough until they were old enough to look after themselves and um, in 1970 73 we were living in Cornwall and I was at work and one of the chaps who knew me very well he said to me, are you alright? so I said, yeah, why? he said, well, you just don't look right he said, you're not yourself 
and we were going through a very bad stage at the time and we actually split up uh, in 1976-77 but it was happening again, she was starting to drain me and the only way I can feel that I actually survived was I actually built a wall around myself a mental wall so that she couldn't actually get in how do you know it was her? Because she was the one that I was in contact most of the time. Yeah, but like being outside and for a different yeah. every day or something. No. It, I mean, the work I was doing, um, I was working in contracting, and most of the time, although you're working with a group, a lot of the time you're working on your own. But it was my wife who never saw anything positive or good in anything. You know. What do you do with people like that? You've got to protect yourself. If you like, I mean, what I would do now is put a cloak of protection around myself. Um, the other way is that when you're doing healing, you open up your psychic centres. If you like, you open up the third eye, you open up the solar plexus, um, and you also open up uh, one in the abdomen, which I can't remember what it's called. But what I do as well, um, consciously, is to shut them down, to close the third eye, as though I'm closing my own eyes, to shut down the solar plexus, which is open like a, like a flower, and as a flower will close at the end of the day, close it in like that, do it mentally. And then put a cloak of protection around yourself, where no harmful influences or vibrations will come in. Do you do that after meditation? I don't normally need to do it after meditation, um, because I usually do meditation where I'm fairly certain there won't be any harmful influences coming in. Mm. Yeah. I mean, occasionally I'll do it, uh, like when I was working at the Express Dairy, every lunch hour I would sit up on the desk, on the bench, put myself into the half lotus position and do meditation for half an hour. And someone used to come in and say, oh, the tail doesn't work again. But what I used to do was to put a cloak of protection around myself about six foot out. Virtually, you know, imagine it, a wall or a cloak, a cone uh, or a, a dome over me and then do the meditation within that. I mean, another thing, um, when I feel stressed up, and I quite often pick that up from other people if I'm not conscious enough to shut myself down, but what it comes in is, if it's like a stress, say I get it here, what I imagine in my mind is an arch, or, or a row of bricks, not supported by anything, but just a row of bricks, mortared bricks, and I imagine the middle brick dropping out, and this brick, as it drops out, it turns to sand. And I imagine all these bricks coming down like uh, sand through an hourglass to a point and running down through my legs. And as I'm walking, I'm leaving it behind me. And I find that it's, it's a feeling of relief as it's going. But it's, um, you know, something you've got to do mentally. My wife finds it extremely difficult to... She's a logical person, she's a mathematician. And she finds it extremely difficult to visualize or image anything like that I mean I say to her sometimes she said all oh, my hands are cold so I said well imagine that you're holding a red hot coal out of the fire I can't do that she said I would get burnt so I said no I said you just imagine you're holding a red hot coal in your hand and it's glowing there you can feel the heat and it's warming your hand up and that heat is trembling up your body she said it isn't logical to put your hand into a fire and pull out a coal I said it doesn't matter about logical logic or anything like that just imagine it and also, imagine that a ray of sunshine has come down onto the top of your head and it's penetrated your head and it has illuminated the whole of the inside of your head. It then moves down to the heart area. Illuminate the whole of the inside of your body. 
And when it has illuminated your hands, your feet, the whole of your body is illuminated inside, it spills outside. You're completely surrounded by a luminous ball. She said, I can't do that. It isn't logical. She said, where does the light come from? So, well, imagine it's the sun. She said, but what if it's the night time? So, well, imagine it's the moon. You know, but it's just actually uh, visual imagination or creative imagination. And it, it works very, very strongly if you can get used to doing it. This um, brings up the, the question of, of intellect being a barrier to these sort of powers. Mm -hmm. Do you find it more difficult to work with people, um, well, perhaps with men than with women, because men are usually considered to be more sort of logical, intellectual, or at least that's a popular <laughs> idea. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in the negative mm -hmm. sense of it being a barrier. No. Um, or do you see it more than when you grow up? I'm not saying it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it might be more of a barrier for men because men find it more difficult to admit to the intuitive side of their nature, don't they, than women? That's what I meant. Yes. Uh, do you now, think that, that, that you find it more difficult, um, or more difficult in general with intellectual people than with non intellectual people? I don't find any difficulty with it, and all I can uh, use as um, an analogy, if you like, in books on hypnosis that I've read, highly intelligent people are more susceptible subject to hypnosis than a person who is, I'll say, thick Strong. and stupid, yes. Uh, sorry, more, more what? Susceptible? More susceptible to high hypnotic influence. Yeah. They're, they're more suggestive, su uh, suggestible. That's probably because their powers of imagination are greater. Possibly, yes. Yeah. I mean, Ruth is a very um, intelligent woman because with the maths, computing, science and technology, she is an absolute marvel. She would eat, sleep and drink maths. She absolutely loves it. Pure maths I'm talking about, so in the higher levels. See, but might be a difficult person to... She is not, because she believes in it as well. Yeah. She doesn't know how it works, yeah. but she is willing to accept that it does work because she knows that it does. Mm. Do you have a sense of time when you're doing it? I mean, do you feel you've got to give somebody two minutes or no. five? No. Do you, do you in fact vary? I do. I mean, with some people, I, I find that I'm not aware of time passing, although I know that time is. Uh, I don't keep check of the time. Mm. It just depends on what I'm feeling, what I'm directed to. Mm. Uh, I very rarely find that it's under about 15 minutes. And I think actually that 15 minutes is probably a short amount of time. Quite a long time. Mm. Well, it doesn't seem to be. You know, I mean, I'm not in a hurry. Mm. I'm not worried about how long it takes. I mean, one area that I would like to investigate but I haven't been able to get is whole, bol or, um, whole body healing with the actual person lying down mm. um, on a bench. What or would you then, massaging? Well, I would start off by doing, um, again, I expect, putting the hands on the head. But apparently, um, again, I did go to a talk by someone who does whole body healing, he was an American, and what he said that he picks up is that um, he picks up discordances in the aura, and he does this by running his hands over the person at distance from the body, not actually touching it. And then he directs his healing energies to wherever he feels the blockage is. Now, until I actually um, heard his lecture, I'd never really considered that healing for blockages. But obviously they are. It's, I mean, to me, it's just an imbalance. That uh, it's, the system is out of harmony. That there's a dis-ease there. That it needs rebalancing and bringing the harmony back.
Would you mentally ask for cooperation with the person? No. No, I don't think of anything. You know, I just... As I say, I've always had someone with me. Um, I'm sometimes more conscious of them than others. Uh, but I can't really say that I've been conscious of them with me when I'm doing the healing. Mm. Now whether, I say I'm not a spiritualist, uh, but I believe in whether it's my guardian angel or I've got a guide or whatever it is, I do not know. But I'm quite often aware. Are you saying you feel their presence whilst you're doing it? No, no, what I'm saying is that I've never actually felt their presence, but then I wouldn't be thinking of it. Mm. I wouldn't be aware of it because I'm concentrating um, subconsciously, not consciously, because if I use a conscious mind, I find that it interferes with what I'm doing. Mm. Can you talk while you're doing it? Yes, I could do. Mm. I mean, occasionally I'll, I'll ask the person to move. Mm. Um, I can't carry on a conversation. I've never really tried. I would find it, I think, rather difficult to carry on a conversation and concentrate on what I'm doing. I mean, I've got what Ruth called a butterfly mind. I can all three or four conversations with different people at the same time and keep the thread going. But if I'm concentrating on something or one aspect, I think that um, I would have to do that to the exclusion of any, uh, anything else. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Did you refer to, to, was it developmental group, did you say? Yes. A developing circle, they call it a lot of the time, yes. Mm. What it usually is, is a group of people get together who have got either have got psychic gifts or know that there's something and they would like to develop it further and sitting in a circle you don't have to touch I mean that's almost as we are now if we were sitting in a circle um, turn off a couple of lights but leave one on for illumination and usually you have one person who will lead, lead the group this is the person who's going to oversee and that is the person who asks for the circle of protection before you start to keep all harmful and evil influences out and what happens then is that you more or less um, if you want to say a prayer beforehand or uh, before you start and then just sit quiet quieten your mind down do some deep breathing um, and then if you want do a meditation and then what happens is that the people have got their gifts developed to any level you can either do it individually, or you can say at the beginning, right, well, tonight we're going to concentrate on Louise. So what happens is that everybody in the circle will quiet themselves down for two or three minutes, do some deep breathing, steady the breathing, slow the breathing rate down, and then just concentrate. Think about Louise, hold her image in their mind, and she just sits there quietly and sees what she can pick up. And it seems that the people have got the gifts, transfer some of that gift to Louise by strengthening and refining her vibrations. And quite often afterwards, you, you know, you have a discussion. Um, about 20 minutes, 25 is usually enough for any length, of t any length of sitting. And then afterwards, the person who's leading it will keep an eye on uh, their watch or whatever. And then they will just say, cough gently or whatever. Um, and then, if you want, you can say a closing prayer. And then ask for the cloak of protection to be lifted, because everybody's come back out. When they come out, you sit quietly for two or three minutes just to gather yourself together. And then, um, you know, make a cup of tea, a biscuits or whatever, and then have a discussion or a chat about what you as an individual experienced. Or, you know, what the person felt. 
And the thing is, it's very important to put the closing, uh, the circle of protection on and then remove it afterwards. Because by removing it afterwards, what you're doing actually is leaving a cloak of protection with each person. Because the person who's, you're, whose gifts you're developing could possibly be open and they could attract unwelcome influences. What happens if you forget? You shouldn't forget. <laughs> you know. Well, possibly nothing. But if the person is, should we say, I won't say weak character, but possibly easily led and very susceptible to influences and suggestions, there could be a possibility that they may attract, should we say, an unwelcome presence. Mm. You know, I mean, it's... It'd be, well, psychic, spiritual, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I think it was Alexander Cannon, in one of his books, which I think was called The Power Within, um, he had a young man who was very, very gifted, but he was also easily led. And he came to Alexander Cannon and he said that I'm possessed. He said, I've got something that won't leave me alone. So Alexander Cannon said, well, what we need to do is to um, have a medium with us and for this medium to exercise, exercise your demon. And he made an appointment for this young chap to come and he didn't turn up. He changed his mind. And then he, he did come to the next one and they sat there for a while and the medium went into a trance and contacted this influence that was dominating this young chap. And the, the influence came through and it started swearing and blaspheming and throwing things around and saying, you know, that I've got him and I'm not going to let him go. And uh, after it was finished, um, the medium came out of the trance and explained what had happened. Because as the medium came out of the trance, the influence went, subsided, and the young chap came back to himself. And he said, well, you know, it's going to take a lot of work. He said, what I've got to do is to get uh, a, spiritual he a spiritual spiritualist who is a guide, who, takes, who guides lost people, people who lost souls, because that's what you've got. Someone who's passed over but doesn't want to leave the earth plane. And they're hanging on to you because, most you know, you're easily led. Apparently, he, in his youth, he'd been under the influence of his mother. His father had died and his mother had, you're all I've got left, sort of thing. And he wasn't strong enough to break away. And they made another appointment for him to come to see the medium and also this uh, spiritualist uh, healer who would guide the spirit the thing away. And he didn't turn up and they found that he'd actually gone to Australia. The influence was so strong that it wouldn't let go of him. Is this the implication that the influence that his mother had passed over and the influence actually was the soul of his mother? That didn't come through. What came through was that he was under the influence of his mother as a young child and hadn't developed enough strength of character yeah, and that through his um, weakness mm -hmm. in his character of not being able to dominate himself and therefore to be assertive, mm -hmm. somehow or other he got one of these uh, a bad influence entity, whatever, had latched onto him. Because he was a weak character. Yes. Which, mm -hmm. of course, doesn't mean that everybody who's had a dominant mother's or is a weak character. Oh, no. The, yeah. um, I've, what, through one or two people who've consulted me about this in the past, they've been a bit worried about it. I, I've sort of talked to people at places like the College of Psychic Studies about this, and the general opinion seems to be that possession is a lot rarer than is often supposed, mm -hmm. and many attempts, particularly in even joyful circles to exorcise people are quite disastrous when it it's not possession at all yeah. and the exorcism actually takes things a lot mm -hmm. worse um, and it's actually quite rare and, and normally what people fear this is usually something inadequacy within themselves mm -hmm. or some tension within themselves yeah. 
I mean, I mean, on taken on the psychological level, it could have been that um, he had a dominant part of his nature that was completely repressed by his mother, mm. and that at odd, odd times this reasserted itself and came out and became the dominant part. And the dominant part, because he'd been, should we say, subservient to his mother and did everything good. He never did anything, you know, he wasn't a naughty boy, he wasn't allowed to get himself dirty. Mm-hmm. If he met friends that his mother didn't like, he wasn't allowed to go with them. So that the yeah. dominant part of his personality came out. So he wasn't actually possessed, but he was possessed by his own personality. But he hadn't actually um, gone through individuation where he had matched the two up. Yeah, well this is very... Has, uh, is possessed by repression? Uh, what's the word I want? Uh, repression. Mm. Yes, you know, it's a dirt. The very much two schools of thought, much like, except yeah. one school that believes there are actually independent spirits, mm. the other school says that it's impossible that you, you're, you are um, a, an integrated self. You can't be just taken over something. Mm. Very, well, what actually happens is what you said. So it's very much a, a division between these two mm. schools of thought mm. on this. I mean, if you take the spiritualist view that some people who pass uh, over yes. become earthbound spirits that's what they, yes, that's because while they've been on earth they've just lived for gratification of the senses and when they pass over they don't want to let go yes. and the only way that they can because they haven't got any material or physical substance the only way they can do it is by latching onto someone else and gratifying the, their own senses through that person by making that person go to excess that, that's the, that's the first point of view, that's the viewpoint that says that this independent enemies can sort of influence you, mm-hmm. but even with that it's only an influence, it's not actual taking over, and, and if you develop the strength of character you could throw that off, mm-hmm. it'd probably go off naturally if yeah. you did develop the strength of character mm-hmm. but some people would say that it never really was possession, but it was something within you, mm-hmm. and there might be some general sort of influence from the other side but not one person just completely taking over mm-hmm. another I, I would have thought that in most cases it would be that, it would be within a mm. person probably. I mean if you take it again on a psychological level that we're all made up of, should we say, hundreds of eyes. We're all so many different people inside and all the time each of these eyes are fighting for dominance. Like we think, right, tomorrow I'm going to go out and I'm going to dig the garden. You get up in the morning you think, oh no, I'll go for a walk instead. So the dominant one is said, I'm going to go and dig the garden the other one's come up and said, no, nah, forget the garden. I'm in charge now, let's go for a walk. So, you know, you've got the dominant facets of your personality and they're all competing for attention. Usually you are um, integrated enough that you can, you know, keep a single mind on it, but occasionally you are influenced by your own personality. There's a sort of intermediate between the two schools of thought which says that um, there are spirits there, but you needn't take any more notice of them than any friend who mm-hmm. might give you bad advice. That's How right. much would you listen to mm-hmm. a friend who told you to go out and get drunk that night? Mm-hmm. If you were, yeah, if, you were if you've got enough strength of character, you say, I'm not going to drink, it doesn't do me any good. Say, well, the, the, mm-hmm. the sort of intermediate school thought says, well, the, all you do is you just, just tell them to go and get lost, mm-hmm. and you're all right, mm-hmm. and, and, and then you keep command of your own faculties. I think real possession is a very unusual thing mm. where somebody's bodily demonic possession are actually taken mm. over. I think that's extremely mm. rare. I've seen a couple walk up and down the uh, tree. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, do you um, have you ever seen any? Um, I presume you're saying there are any spirits at all. I've never actually seen them where um, I would say that you can see through them. 
the ones or the visual, should we say, I won't say hallucinations, but materialisations that I've seen have been as solid as you are. And even my mother, who passed over in 1975, I mean, she has occasionally appeared to me again, and she has been as solid as though um, she was still alive. Mm. Now, last August, my father-in-law came down to visit us, and he stayed with us for a week, and we went to Salisbury, went to Salisbury Cathedral. Now, he is a very strong military man, and we were walking around the different... Uh, looking at the different um, flags there. And my wife went into a small chapel which is set aside for private prayer. And I went in with her and was looking at the different things. And she sat down and she started crying. And I sat down by the side of her and I thought, well, you know, I know you're upset, but I'll just sit with you and comfort you. And my mother appeared behind me. Now, th this is how I know the difference between a live... Um, manifestation and a person who has passed over. The live ones all appear, always appear on the right side. The person who has passed over always appears on the, de on the left. Now she appeared behind my left shoulder and she just sat there, stood there, I don't know which. Um, I could actually, again, I could actually see the panelling behind her. And like seeing the radiator behind Nigel, that's how I actually saw my mother. She was solid and the panelling of the chapel or the uh, a little thing was, was split up with her, around her image. Um, that was, I think, on the Wednesday. On the Saturday, I phoned my sister up, who lives in London, as I say, and I said, oh, Mum was with me this week on Wednesday. She said, I thought she was around, because my sister has got, it's not a compulsion, but it isn't far from it, and it's not quite obsessive, that she goes into the room and she smooths the bed covers out. Every, before she goes anywhere, she's got to go into each of the bedrooms and smooth the top cover out. And she went into, uh, I'm not sure if it's her bedroom or her son's bedroom, and the top cover had been messed up. Now this happened about nine months after my mother passed away. Um, she was living in a, that was in 1975, and she was living in a flat in Charlton. And there was only herself and her son, and he was at school. And she, about ten o'clock, she'd smoothed all the blankets out, all the top covers out, and she had to go into her son George's room for something. And the top cover was all messed up. And she said, George, where are you? Of course, there's no answer. She went all through the flat looking for George. She thought, little bugger, pardon my language. She said, bugger. She said, he, he hasn't gone to school. She smoothed the cover out again, um, went out and did something else, and thought, I wonder if he's hiding in the bedroom. Went back in, this was about an hour later, the cover was mixed, mixed, up, mixed up again. So she smoothed it all out, and then um, it didn't happen anymore during the day. And George came in at his usual time, she grabbed hold of him and she said, where have you been? She said, you haven't been to school. Yes, I have, Mum, he said. I think he was about 10 at the time. Yes, I have, Mum, he said. She said, you haven't. She said, you've been here. She said, you've been messing the bed up. He said, I haven't, I haven't. He said, I thought she'd been at school. And a friend of his was living across the road and um, he said, well, come across and see so-and-so. So he said, yeah, Georgie was there because he got into trouble. He got some lines. And then that evening a friend of hers came in and said to Babs, oh, she said, I didn't know you liked sandalwood. So Babs said, pardon? She said, I didn't know you liked sandalwood. So I said, well, I haven't got any sandalwood here. She said, well, she said, there's a strong smell of sandalwood, she said, in your kitchen. And that was my mother's favourite um, talcum powder. So, you know, say this was about nine months after my mother had died. And when I phoned my sister up on this Saturday after, Wednesday, after I'd seen my mother on the Wednesday, she said that a friend of hers had come in, and I'm not sure if it was the same friend, who said, oh, your mum's around again, because I can smell her. 
So, you know, we knew that mum was there. For what reason, we don't know, but it's just that she was there at the time. So a ghost can become sufficiently physical to disrupt mm -hmm. the bedclothes? It seems like it, yes. Mm -hmm. Just to make her presence known. I once read of a ghost that used to drink pints of beer. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. And it's very spiritual Now, when I was sitting in the developing circle in Cornwall, which was um, in 1975, my mother died on the 20th of November at 8.30. And I say she died... Well, my sister was, was with... Oh, with her. Uh, this was in London. But I was sitting in the developing circle and we started about 8 o'clock and finished about quarter to nine, the complete group. And while we were in the, the session, I had a picture of space with the sun, the earth, the shine of the earth, and the moon. And the moon came up to the sun three times, slipped back to the earth. And on the third time, it came up to the sun, passed underneath it, and just slipped away. Now, my mother and I were very, very close. I mean, she'd seen my uh, astral body and I was conscious of her when she was around at different times. And it wasn't until the next day that my brother phoned up and he said, Mum passed away last night. And I said, well, what time was it? He said, 8.30. Now, when we finished the developing circle that night and we were talking about what we'd experienced, I explained this. And Margaret, who was, um, if you like, on watch that night, she said that she'd seen like moonlight flickering across my face. And mum and myself had always said, well, whoever goes first, we'll let the other one know. Now, the only way that I interpret, or the way that I interpreted that was that, the sun being the male principle and the moon being the female, mm -hmm. that she actually was getting close to going, and then on the third time she came up to tell me, and then she went. And well, a nice picture of that, Yes, it was. It was very, very nice. Mm -hmm. You know, and then someone said to me, Chaplain Worthy, sorry, so I'm sorry to hear about your mum. So I said, well, that's all right. He said, well, aren't you upset? I said, well, I'm upset that she's gone, certainly, but I'm not distressed because I know that I'll see her again. And I know that, you know, she's with me anyway. I mean, I didn't hang on to her. My sister was told, um, it must have been actually after the time that she'd seen the impression on the bed. She was um, with someone who was uh, psychic, not a, not a medium or anything like that. But they said to her, you've got to let your mum go. And she said, what do you mean? They said, you're holding your mum back here. She wants to go on. She wants you to stop grieving for her because she is happy. Now my mother died actually of heart failure rather than heart attack. And what had happened was that all her life she'd smoked quite heavily. In 1944 she'd been told by the doctor to stop smoking because she had bronchitis every year developed into pleurisy and she ended up with a spot on the lung and in 1972 she passed out while she was coming home from work and my sister went to the doctor with her and um, the doctor said to my sister your mother's suffering from heart failure not heart attack but heart failure what has happened is that her continual smoking has rotted the left side of her heart so much so that it can't carry on properly. So literally only half of her heart was working in a proper fashion. So her body was actually being starved of oxygen. She went into uh, the Brook Hospital and in the ward that she was in were a lot of elderly people who had had vi bypass valves put into their hearts. And the surgeon came in and said, right, we're going to do this tomorrow. We're going to put a catheter in the vein 
pass it up across your shoulder, down into your heart and take photographs to see if we can do anything for you. And they did this the next morning and then when she'd come round in the evening the surgeon came back and sat with her and she's, when I saw her um, a day or two after that she said, I knew as soon as he sat down that he couldn't do anything for me. She said, he didn't say anything, she said he just sat there and looked at me and put his hand on my arm and then he said, I'm terribly, terribly sorry. He said, but we will be unable to do the operation. He said, because the left side of your heart is so rotten, so rotted out, that it, there isn't a part of it that will be strong enough to hold the valve. So she had a, a cylinder of oxygen at home. Now at this time, I'd been working away from home, and I actually hadn't seen much of my mother from 1967 to 1972. And we were on holiday in Cornwall, and I woke up on... I think it was a Thursday night, a Thursday morning rather, and said to my wife, there's something wrong with my mother. Because the dream before, I'd seen my mother and my sister, and my mother lived in Greenwich, and I'd seen her outside what used to be a fish and chip shop, and she was wearing a green suede coat, suede coat that she loved. She couldn't talk to me, her voice was too weak. She, when she spoke to me in the dream, it was a whisper. And my sister had talked to me, but she hadn't actually said that my mother was ill. But the next one I said to my wife, there's something wrong with my mother, you know, she isn't well. And when we got home, my wife's brother said, uh, said to my wife, I don't know if I should tell you or not, he said, but Ken's mum's in the in, uh, intensive care unit at uh, St. Alfred's Hospital. Now I hadn't been aware that she was suffering from this. We kept in contact, but neither her or my sister had told me. But, um, so I went to see her in hospital, and then um, she transferred from St. Alfred's up to the Brook Hospital when I went to see her. Uh, and then that's when she told me you know, that the surgeon said that they wouldn't be able to operate and then just after that in the, that was in the August then in the December I moved to Cornwall and she came down to visit us for about five or six weeks in 1973 went back home and then in 74, 75 I said well you know you're coming down again for another holiday but what she had to have was a biopsy on her liver and what had happened was that her liver was three times its size and uh, she wrote back and said, no, I can't come, I've got to have another operation. And um, then in, she died on the 20th of November, on the 12th or 14th of November, she was taken into the intensive care unit and never came out of it. But as I say, the time, and the night that she died, I had this, this uh, image, visual image of the sun, the earth, part of the earth's sphere, shining against the backdrop of space, and the moon coming up. I'm not going. No, that's right. Mm. What about auras? Do you do you? I don't actually see them, but I I sense them. Um, there's a lady in Hastings. Her name is I'm not sure. I think it's Catherine Cook. Is the name that she actually goes by. She's a painter, mm -hmm. but she's also a very very strong psychic, to the extent that she was in Cornwall with her friend, and they were driving down just above St Knives, and they passed this house which was down. In, off of the road and as they went past she said to her friend stop the car and go back and she said there's something terrible happened here she said I, I'm not sure what it is she said but something terrible has happened in that house so they went to the police station and she said has something happened in this house so they said how do you know so she said well I just feel that something's happened here she said because it's so terribly sad so they said well actually an elderly lady has been battered to death 
So they said, would you be prepared to come back with us and come into the house? So she said, well, yes, all right. Because various things have happened in the past and she doesn't like this gift. So she went into the house with them and she went in she said, no, she said, I can't come in here. She said, there's, there's too much sadness and there's too much violence. And she said, I can actually smell the blood. So they went back outside and she said to them that you want to look for a small ex-post office van which has been painted yellow. She said, there's two men in it. One's got a beard and the other one is clean-shaven but very scruffy. And she said, they're the two. She said, if you look in the back, you'll find whatever had been taken from the house. Well, they found these, caught these two men up at Camelford and the police wanted her to identify the men but she said she couldn't because actually coming to their physical presence would have been too much for her with the violence that they'd actually perpetrated on this old lady. Anyway, when um, I was in Hastings, I put an advert in a paper, um, do you feel like you're an outsider? I wanted to gather a group. And I had several people phone up saying that um, uh, they had these strange experiences but nobody had been able to explain them. Did, they think, did I think that I could? So I went to see Catherine Cook and she told me what had happened and she said, I don't know why I'm telling you. She said, because I don't tell people these. And so I said to her that, you know, it's just something that she would have to accept. But if she accepted it, it would be that much easier on her. And I explained to her about psychic gifts and she virtually had this. She actually did her paintings um, under psychic conditions. And she said, you're a healer, aren't you? I said, well, yes, but how did you know? She said, I can see the blue sparks coming from your fingertips. You know, I mean, it's there all the time. It's there now. I mean, it's eased down a bit, but it's quite strong at the moment. But um, I don't actually see auras, but I do feel them. So you could feel the... Um, one of the problems, isn't it, with, with auras, as often the psychic says, but there's a difference between the temporary aura and the permanent aura. Mm. Sometimes if a person happens to be in a bad mood or mm -hmm. a good mood or something, it distorts the general aura mm. and people tend to pick up the immediate picture. That's they right. They manage to get through that to the permanent aura. That is to say, a person could be very stressed mm. out, they might have just avoided a car accident or something, mm -hmm. really shaken up, and yet you would see it as if they hadn't had that. Effect. Yes. What I actually feel is that that person is um, disturbed. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be able to know what actually is wrong, but I, I know. I mean, even if they're perfectly calm on the outside and, you know, making a cup of tea and carrying on a conversation. Again, I think that what I use is uh, the psychology background that I've got uh, with body language, but also the intuitive psychic gifts that I have as well, that I can pick it up from body language, but using the intuition, I can feel that they are disturbed. So would you manage, the point I'm really is would you manage to get beyond that superficial disturbance that only happened that day? I think I usually do, I think. To a feeling of what the aura is like mm. in the long run yes. for that person. I usually get two levels. Mm. I mean, as soon as I, I say as soon as I walk into the room, but um, I'm aware of the disturbance in the atmosphere of the room. And I can usually pin it down just virtually, you know, by watching people. And... I usually get drawn to, to one person, I think, ah, oh, they're upset, they're disturbed. But underlying that, I can feel, if you like, a sadness underneath it. Or a happiness. Or, or whatever, I can feel two levels. Mm. And it is, I mean, say, if you read about the auras, that when a person is severely distressed and upset, um, the aura, which usually 
um, it's an extension of about foot to 18 inches to 2 foot at maximum usually jumps to about 4 foot and when they're severely emotionally upset there's black and red flashing rather than it just a gentle pulsation which is what I feel most of the time it's this sort of thing which is a disturbance they're shooting out like solar flares uh, and when they're um, some very pleasant emotion like being in love or very excited or having just won a, a race or something then that you presumably there's something good in the aura that's right yes it, it's usually um, it's yeah. beaming <laughs> what's the colour of love then in the aura it's blue yellow or gold uh, I mean um, gold is the, he is the strongest healing colour I don't know a lot about healing colours, I keep meaning to read up on it, but something seems to stop me. A lot of healers use yeah. gold. Yeah. So what I feel at the moment is that um, I'm not intended to go into colour healing at this moment. Because I find this, that if I'm trying to pursue a line of thought, I keep getting directed away from it, if it's not ready for me at the time. Uh, but um, it's blue, yellow and gold. What sort of shade of blue? Um, electric blue, very pale blue. Um, I mean, calmness is a very, very pale blue. I mean, another thing that I do to, if um, I'm feeling stressed up or I can't seem to calm myself down, is to surround myself in a blue cocoon. I mean, the way I do that, because I'm left-handed, I use my left hand. They, you know, being the sinister or being the, le uh, the bad side, you shouldn't. But I'm left-handed, so, left so I use the left most of the time. But I mean, occasionally I will just do that. Or other times, if I'm out in public, I'll do it mentally. Blue, yellow, and go. Blue and yellow. Blue is, I thought, usually associated with the sort of meditative stillness, and yellow with the intellect. Mm -hmm. And I thought that, but maybe you're talking about a love in many meanings of that mm -hmm. word, including. Well, he's got three. He's got three different colours. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think, uh, but I think you were meaning sort of sexual or romantic love, weren't you? Mm -hmm. And that would I've often read that that's. Uh -huh. but, yeah, I was going to say, yes. Yeah. See, seeing, seeing the world through rose-coloured spectacles, you know, it's like all of these things, you know, seeing the you world through... Love, you see, yeah. that's why I thought you said yeah. that. Yeah. You said that? Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of these things which are passed into folklore, as I say, like um, seeing the world through rose-coloured spectacles, when everything is wonderful, you're on cloud, cloud nine. Um, it does, actually, yes. Mm. Yeah. It's surprising that, um, let's say that... Um, should we say spiritual love, motherly love, fatherly love, a caring love is usually somewhere within the range of blue, yellow and gold. Yeah, so, so just tell us what is being in love? Well that would be pink, red, but um, a mixture of the two. Yeah. Like you get a rose which is a mixture between say yellow, pink and red, or you get them different shades of uh, mm. pink. And I think as well that if you've just fallen into love, it's probably a lot deeper because there's, you've much more emotion going out, yes. But now that Nigel's brought it up, what, what does sexual passion look like? That would be blood-red, I should imagine, you know. You would. Yes, lust. Lust. Yes. But then you see, lust, lust and anger, <laughs> lust and anger are very close to one another. You have to spell that for yes. but Lust yes, and anger are very close to one another. But anger can either be hot or cold, mm. whereas passion and lust is hot. So anger can either be red hot jealousy and hate, which also is black, mm. or it could be white, ice cold blue. That's a sort of more logical anger. That's right, yes. Mm. Well, anger said we shot through with black, black streets. Mm. And we yeah, if there's hatred in it, it's usually got black in it because hatred is black. Mm. It's all enveloping. 
But I mean, if you've got a kitchen which is painted pale blue, it will always feel cold, even at the hottest summer. It will also always attract flies as well. And it also fails the yeah. But there are positive sides to this colour. Mm -hmm. um, so In the healing sense, yes. Pale blue is serene, mm -hmm. isn't it? And yes. leads to a stillness. And mm -hmm. the blue sky it makes you very, very feel very... That's right. Very, mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. sometimes very uh, exhilarated mm -hmm. and very, very much... Yes. Pleasant and, and black isn't always a bad colour either. No. It's not, not all black is hatred. If you're giving mm. black a rather a bad PI. Well, it's just what we relate the emotions to. But if you imagine that, I mean, you see a picture of an iceberg, it's usually a blue. Mm. You know, thick ice is blue, it isn't white. It, it's the, the deeper the ice gets and the thicker, the more you can look into it, it's blue. And ice blue is extremely cold. If you walk into a room that has got ice blue paint in it, you will always feel cold. Mm. And yet, as Nigel says, um, I went out to a day centre yesterday at Stone and St Newton where they've got um, physically handicapped and mixed ability people. And they've got one room there which they call the playroom. And they've actually got it stippled with pale green and light blue. Now, a lot of the instructors say, ugh, what a horrible colour. And I said to the senior instructor who was showing me around, you painted it in the right colours. She said, why is that? I said, well, blue is for calmness, and green is for um, healing and for soothing. And the other colour is pale yellow, mm. which is why hospitals are now going over for greens and yellows, because it calms people down, it soothes them down. Mm. All the reds are hot colours designed to raise passions.